Encore Consult fam. We are back with episode 91, I believe, right, Cole? Sounds right. Something like that. So uh, today we're we're joined by another guest, and um, all the way from Michigan. And so I think this is a topic that is going to be a lot more um, kind of in-depth, I guess, than we normally kind do. Kind specialized. Um, a little specialized, so that's why we, we brought in um, a uh, fourth-year student um, to kind of go over this. She's got some experience in this particular uh, topic. And uh, so, Ms. Sharon DeCow, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, guys. Um, so I'm Sharon. I'm a fourth-year student at Wayne State University. Um, and right now I'm doing all of my appy rotations at Henry Ford Hospital. So we have something called a LAP program, which I'm not sure if you've heard, like at Freighter, they call it LAPI. So it's longitudinal where the entire year you spend um, in the hospital. So for us, even our community rotation is spent in the hospital and it's just kind of like a way to prepare yourself for residency. Um, we have the option of doing research projects, MUEs, so it's it's been fun times. Nice. That's very mm-hmm. cool. So with uh, with the way it's set up and you even do your community rotations in the hospital, is that just more so like outpatient dispensing as patients are leaving, or how does that work? So at Henry Ford, it's actually pretty unique. So we have six-week rotation blocks, and three weeks of it is spent in the discharge pharmacy. So um, you will either be on the bench counseling patients or working with insurance issues, sending prior authorizations. And then some of the time you're with the pharmacist who makes follow-up calls to patients who are recently discharged with CHF exacerbations. And then you also spend some time with um the onco pharmacist who's involved in discharge pharmacy with certain medications like Revlimid. Um, and then the other half of it, you're spent in dialysis, taking medication histories and then um, reconciling them and then making those, making whatever adjustments are necessary. So you're kind of all over the place. It's kind of nice because you get to see the entire community scene and you get more outpatient contact than somewhere like a local pharmacy or a chain pharmacy where it's unfortunately sometimes for the students, a lot of counting and a lot of taking phone calls. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds really good. So we haven't even mentioned uh, what we're talking about today, which is uremic puritis, which is essentially just itching associated with dialysis. So is that where you got involved with it was when you were working dialysis on that rotation or had you uh, been looking into it previous? Yes, actually that was the first time that I heard of uremic puritis. So in my three weeks in the dialysis portion of my community rotation, um, my preceptor had me do just uh, like a pretty broad hemodialysis topic discussion. And then one of the questions was, what is your, well, the first one was, why would a patient who um, is on dialysis experience itching? Why is itching one of the common side effects? And then that kind of led me to uremic puritis, which we had like a pretty extensive conversation about. Um, and even being on the floors, I've never heard of it before yeah. that. So it was pretty cool to stumble stumble upon. Yeah, I had heard reference to it just from patients I have who were on dialysis, but I, I really did not know too much about it. So did you do this for a grand rounds topic or was this just some other type of research uh, situation? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I had a hard time hearing you. That's fine. Did you do it for a grand rounds topic? 
for I'm sorry, for, you said for grand round. Yeah, so. you you guys might not call it that. Yeah, so like sorry. um for uh for like a topic discussion or journal club or something like, like that. A, like a presentation. Did you give a presentation on it? Oh 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 oh, um yes. Yeah, so we wound up doing a uh, a journal club on one of the drugs that's in the pipeline. It's called difilocephalin. Um, try to say that three times fast. I can't even say and it one time that, fast. <laughs> and then that actually wound up getting sent out to the entire nephrology team. So that was actually pretty cool. Oh, nice. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, yeah. What, what are your plans, you know, kind of after school? Are you going the residency track, I'm assuming? Yes, I am. I'm excited. Any, uh, you know, like, idea of where you want to go with that? Like, you, do you need to stay in, like, ambulatory care or what's your goals? So I've kind of, so right now, um, my goals are to kind of explore my interests. So right now I have pretty strong interest in ambulatory care and academia, um, but I'm still open to kind of anything. So I kind of want to take that year to vet my interests, build my clinical skills, kind of build my style as a clinician. I apply to um, places in and out of state. Um, and right now my interviews are in-state so probably staying more local and then seeing where where that takes me next year that's very cool so Thanks. so did uh which been your favorite rotation so far or favorite experience um so biased i'd probably have to say ambulatory care which is the rotation i'm on right now um tied with internal medicine on the pulmonary floor mm. Ooh, there you go. Yeah. She only says that just in case her preceptor hears this. Yeah, there you go. She's, she's looking for that A. It's all about, you gotta get the, the A. Pre- yeah. So my, the preceptor I'm with right now is, um, it's my Amcare rotation, but she runs, uh, it's a pulmonary clinic. So it actually, it was a perfect transition because everything that I learned on the internal medicine side is just kind of like, oh, wow. Okay. So like, I saw you six months ago when I was on the floor. You were admitted for COPD exacerbation. Now you're here. That's cool. So it's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Do you do you like doing inpatient um, or do you prefer that the outpatient type setting? I My heart is torn. So I, I like both. Um, and I like how you can use your brain in different ways in both. Um, and I think that's what my battle is with with like – do I do a PGY two? Like that's that's what I'm actually really looking forward to in residency because like I miss rounding when I'm on Amcare, but I miss the quality time I get to spend with patients and the long term relationships I build when I'm inpatient. So kind of got to find the balance and see where where my heart lies and where I can make the biggest impact. Yeah, I hear you. It's hard. It's hard. When the good thing is, is you can kind of do so many different things I, I guess almost at the same time that you may even find yourself in a situation where they let you do a couple weeks ambulatory care and then let you do around you know a week of inpatient rounding and you never know yeah that that would be actually ideal we actually have a couple of our preceptors we just opened a chf clinic and that's actually what they're doing they're rotating preceptors through so that actually that would be ideal yeah that, that'd be really cool yeah so yeah 
so let's kind of get into this uh, uremic pruritus. So should, let's start with, I guess, kind of the the pathophysiology, because you know we when we when you hear like okay, pruritus, you got some itching going on. Who who cares? But this can be like a not only not only like a very serious adverse effect that is very bothersome as far as quality of life and everything, but it happens to a lot of patients that are on dialysis. So um, right. what what kind of you know. Where did you guys start when you were in clinic as far as learning this topic? Where did you start with the pathophys? Because there's a lot of different potential mechanisms here. So we started with a kind of bigger picture that there is no one common etiology and the, the pathogenesis and pathophysiology related to the like not inability to pinpoint is that it's unknown. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of um, – there's like literature to support many causes. So um, – kind of looking at it from the broad spectrum and obviously in patients who are on hemodialysis, you're not able to clear um, certain elements. So like magnesium, uh, calcium, uh, nitrogen, or their BUN is typically higher. So it's hard to kind of pinpoint one of those many things. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's, I think, up-to-date lists, I mean, 10 different research articles that proposes 10 different theories of what's or hypotheses of what's going on. So it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. They talk about different, um, Mm -hmm. uh, different mast cell, um, situations recently. They talk about other inflammatory response, uh, by the immune system, opiodergic receptor activation. So like Mm -hmm. opioid receptors, very interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that they can't pinpoint a single thing, even though a lot of people experience it. Experience it. Yeah. And even with, um, things like tumor necrosis factor and um, kind of its its relationship with nerve growth factor, nerve elongation, like growth factors, which are kind of what stimulate an itch. So it's kind of like, it's, it's like a chicken and egg situation, but it's going back to what you said, the more recent data and all the literature that has been in the last five years or so has kind of focused more on the opioid receptors. Right, right. Yeah. So as far as like TNF alpha, I mean, because I think uh, interleukin six, interleukin two, um, some of those are, are also, you know, some of the targets that they think may be causing it. Um, where, uh, where have you seen? I mean, are they looking at certain biologics and things like that as far as potential treatment options, or have they tested a lot of that? I actually am not sure about biologics, but when we get into the treatment, there's actually some data to support that pentoxifylline has very, very small trace TNF um, alpha antagonism, which is enough to kind of stop the nerve growth factor um, genesis by the keratinocytes. And that's like also kind of piggybacking off of it being the pro-inflammatory cytokine. So it's what I've seen, it's more of like the pentoxifylline or um using like tecrolimus, topical ointment, right. things like that. Gotcha. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so some of <laughs> some of the, the risk factors, things like that, um, one of the ones that I kept seeing come up uh, in some of the literature was the inadequate dialysis. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, that obviously would be an issue whether or not the, they're getting appropriate dialysis. And then also uh, the hyperparathyroidism is – you know, Correct. another, uh, another big issue. What did you kind of see? Did you, did you see some of that when you were actually in working with those patients? 
Yes, actually. Um, but then it's also, sorry, I know I'm kind of bouncing around no, here, go for it. but then it's, <laughs> but then it's also like, is that a, my mind goes is is that like all because of dialysis? Is it because of medication on adherence? Um, because we have patients who would have electrolyte abnormalities, but then we would find that there is either an issue with medication access or medication adherence. So I think that kind of ties back to the pathophys of like, we just, we don't know because we can't really pinpoint what, what the underlying factor is to a T. Yeah. And, um, as far as like the parathyroid hormone and phosphate, calcium, magnesium, all those things that sometimes can be elevated in patients, um, you know, that are experiencing this versus the ones that are not, uh, did you, how, how comfortable did you get with, with that whole balancing PTH with phosphate and calcium and vitamin D and all those things like that? Because that's, that's a, a topic that I think is very hard to kind of get your head around, especially when you're first looking at it. How yeah, did and you I, get to do a lot of that when you were in the clinic? I actually did have the privilege of doing that um, after kind of talking, vetting things through my preceptor. Um, also kind of looking at like hospital policies, which are nice that they're there. Um, yeah, so I, I was able to. It, it, I still kind of feel a little shaky being able to just kind of right off the bat make a recommendation, but my, my preceptor was super supportive and kind of guiding my thinking through all of it. Very cool. So, and I guess the way, you know, I, I kind of always think about, especially um, in patients, you know, before they actually get put on hemodialysis, as the kidneys start to fail, and this is more, um, you know, just to catch it, because we've done some CKD stuff before, but just for the listeners to kind of a quick review, you know, the way I kind of think about it is when your your kidney's function first starts to decline uh what can happen you know it can start off as something as simple as vitamin d deficiency because vitamin mm-hmm. d needs to be uh activated by two different hydroxylation reactions the first one's in the liver second one's in the kidney itself and so because that lack of vitamin d um or activated vitamin d i should say um it begins to decrease then you you get you tend to get this uh, increase of parathyroid hormone because your body uses mm-hmm. the vitamin D to absorb the calcium, and when the calcium is not able to be absorbed because of the lack of vitamin D, parathyroid hormone gets activated and starts to increase to basically activate osteoclasts in the bone, which then you know uh, reabsorbs the calcium from the bone itself. And so then you could start having your calcium levels kind of normalizing, even though your vitamin D is low. And then oftentimes on the other side of that, you have phosphate levels starting to, you know, rise because you're not able to kind of filter that phosphate. So then it becomes this kind of sure. like vicious cycle of trying to keep up with all these different <laughs> electrolytes. And you know, once yeah. you throw hemodialysis in there, you know, some of the same meds like the phosphate binders and things like that, you can still use. Uh, but sometimes you'll actually see patients that get, I mean, really, really high uh, parathyroid hormone levels. And at mm-hmm. that point, you may even just need to remove you know, the parathyroid. Um, and so that's just to kind of reiterate some of that that we've talked about in the past, but, um, you know, that's, I think, uh, that whole kind of puzzle, I think is something that, especially I know a lot of my students, my PA students have a hard time with when I first go over that section and for CKD, they're like, you know, what the heck are you talking about? But, um, (laughs) something that once you kind of get it, I think it definitely makes a lot of sense as far as when to use what for pharmacotherapy, based on those levels. Sure. 
Um, but that's kind of just to tie that in there. But um, so you know, let's get back to the actual, you know, parietis. So um, what do you, do you want to, do you want to talk us through some of the, you know, treatment options that are available? Um, sure. Or what do you want to so, go with that? I'll let you pick. We can, we can kind of dive into the off-label, off-label medications that are used and then kind of get into what's in the pipeline. Okay, cool. If you're okay with yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Awesome. So um, right now, kind of like as I was mentioning before, there are no drugs on the market that have official FDA approval for uremic pruritus. Um, however, there's a lot of off-label, non-FDA um, uses, but then again, at what dose and then at what frequency, there really aren't any randomized control trials out there to really give us a clear picture. So um, some of the medications that you'll see, we'll start with the topical. So obviously the emollients, just because of the very nature of the irritated dry skin. Um, and then like kind of like where the utility of the pharmacist and that is like knowing when to use ointment versus cream versus lotion. So you're, you know, drying scaly skin versus your weeping lesions. Um, and then without any conflicts of interest, um, a lot of my patients will usually just be like on a userin cream or an aquaphor just to kind of keep the area um, nice and moist. And then as far as getting into kind of your more oral medications, um, what we see and then being mindful of renal dosing with, um, with a lot of them is gabapentin. So gabapentin actually has the most evidence behind it. Uh, it's been studied at, I want to say it's 100 milligrams three times a week mm -hmm. after dialysis. That's what I saw and that too. has shown, a, mm, yeah, and that has actually shown a pretty significant effect. Um, but then again, kind of also like keeping in mind that they're on dialysis. So if they're on gabapentin for another indication, are we, is there polypharmacy involved? Is, are they getting more than they should? Um, and then kind of moving forward. So that's kind of gabapentin with just helping the neurological, um, if you will, kind of symptom of itching. And then um, there's also photolight therapy, which is non-pharmacological. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a lot. You're totally fine. We um, do this literally every episode. <laughs> oh, you're saying way more on track than we usually do, I promise. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're totally fine. So there's, <laughs> um, so kind of getting into the other non-farm, there's actually UV photolight therapy uh, with UVB rays. I, I'm not an expert on like frequencies or anything like that, but there is some data to support that uh, patients were uh, able to um, see a decrease in effects by, there's just like little scores they take. There's like a 5D itch score. There's um, a Skindex 10 score. Uh, these kind of just talk about the itch and then how it's affecting the patient's daily life. So there's some data behind that, but then we also have to think the flip side. Okay, well, if you're exposing a patient to UVB rays, which are the same sun rays that give us sunburns, what could that mean in the long term when it comes to skin cancer or other skin ab abnormalities? Right. And then, uh, yeah, and then like acupuncture, right? So the when you get into the CAM therapy, thinking about acupuncture, it's it's there and there's some conflicting data on acupuncture, but then it's also like, okay, how practical is that for a patient? And then we as providers, where do we, how do we recommend that? 
Right. Um, so that's kind of like the, sorry, go ahead. For some of the, like the eczema type symptoms, they, I had seen tacrolimus mentioned, um, then others were like, eh, probably don't use this. Had you seen that used or is it mostly just the emollient type, um, topical stuff? Yeah. 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 And that makes, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So most of the emollient stuff. Um, and the thing, yeah. kind of like you were talking about with the UV light, you know, that would be my concern with Tacro would be, you know, if you're one, I mean, some of the data I was looking through, it showed that there's a couple studies that haven't really shown. I mean, granted, there are very, very small studies, but haven't really shown too right. much benefit. And then there is right. the whole, you know, increased risk of seeking malignancies um, with mm-hmm. you know, topical Tacro. So I would be, I mean, I totally get the concept of it, but you know, I always get a little bit hesitant with that, even with like psoriasis or atopic dermatitis or something, because I just feel like you're going to be using this long term. Are you potentially putting sure. the person at risk? Um, and then I've even seen sure. uh, there's some evidence, I think, that uh, with chromalin, it, like oral chromalin. Have you seen anything like that to d- disrupt some of the I mast actually- cell production? There, yeah, so that's actually part of the physiology, but I um, actually... I've not been able to read too much about chromolin, so I'm actually kind of curious. I mean, I think there's only, a, again, like very small studies. In fact, there's a one report that I, that I read um, that had two patients in it. So that's not a great, oh, nice. uh, not a solid <laughs> patient pool. But um, I yeah. think it's very weak evidence, but there's some out there. And then I even saw, a, again, super small study that was looking at capsaicin. Um, so they, you know, yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it makes sense to me. Like you would disrupt, you know, or uh, deplete substance P, you know, and, and that inflammatory meter, but you're putting something on the skin all the time that one of the adverse effects is irritation to skin. that's already highly irritated. Right. I think that would be not a great long-term solution, but sure. that's just my sure. and I guess we didn't, first glance at it. We didn't talk too much about the presentation, but, um, yeah, it's not just that you feel itchy and you start itching. I mean, you're having actual um, changes on the skin that are going to present visibly, um, which is going to cause people to itch more. And um, it's kind of a, a vicious cycle, it seems. Was it mainly in the patients you saw just immediately after dialysis for a short period of time, or was it kind of chronic as long as they were on dialysis? It was a lot of them were chronic, Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, you see the scratch marks and you see like the impetigo and you're like, oh my gosh, that looks so uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 And you mentioned gabapentin. Um, I I was looking at one study that looked like it was kind of like a a switch type study where patients that had been on gabapentin um, were switched to pregabalin. Um, And so the, I know like the authors on like up to date, they, they basically recommend that if gabapentin's not working in your patients to at least give pregabalin a try um, because you may still have some efficacy there. Um, did you see pregabalin used at all when you were in clinic? I actually didn't see too much of pregabalin. Predominantly is gabapentin. Um, and I might, this might be just because of my own ignorance with um, just kind of like affordability, but a lot of our patients, um, are in like a lower income. So I don't know if it, if it's that, or if it's that the gabapentin is working for them. Great. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, the price thing definitely makes mm-hmm. sense. I mean, your yeah. lyric is not the cheapest drug in the market. No, which is no. generic now, but it's no. still, yeah. still expensive. Is it generic? I didn't even it know is. that. Yes. That's what I get Just for not working retail. Late last year, I believe. That's cool. <laughs> or mid last year. I didn't know that. 
See, I learned something too. That's great. Yeah. See, Good job, Cole. <laughs> in that cushy clinic, you're not on the front lines anymore. Oh, man. Seeing all the craziness. Um, all right. So what, what other uh, options do we have out there? So realistically, so the gabapentin and then the non-farm. And then we also have um, the typical antihistamines. So your hydroxyzine, your diphenhydramine. Um, some patients actually you'll see them on naltrexone yeah. uh, because of the, yeah. And going back to the whole opioid uh, potential like pathophys. So you'll see some of them on naltrexone. Uh, that actually helps a little bit. We had a couple of patients in our clinic or in our dialysis unit who are on naltrexone. Um, and then there's also, it's called nail. I'm, I'm going to botch this up. Nail, nalifurine. Um, instead of working on kappa being a kappa agonist, it's a mu antagonist to keep the balance between kappa and mu nice um that i haven't seen too much um i know there are a couple studies and it's i mean it's available orally it's either 2.5 mics every night micrograms every night um and it might it may be increased to five micrograms every day if it's required and that, so um, there's yeah, that, I've, and that's the the new drug that you were mentioning that hasn't quite hit FDA approval. That's kind of the same. It's still it's working on the capio, um, cap opioid receptor as well, right? Correct. So that mm-hmm. that opioid um, theory where they have like an imbalance of between mu and kappa receptors seems to actually be a very promising target. Yeah, that that kind of seems to be um, where everything's kind of headed, and I think that's also because that's what we have the most evidence from like, this is the kind of one of the first like randomized controlled trials where we're looking at this specific population with a specific disease. And I guess the next steps would be like head to head competitors with that versus gabapentin. That would be where my thought process goes with that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems Uh, like the, at least the trial that they've done so far seems to be at least as good, if not slightly better, but yeah, it'd be interesting to have something head to head. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, again, kind of like bouncing around here, but the last thing I kind of read up on was the pentoxifiline, but we don't really see that in practice, um, outside of even like the intermittent claudication. Like I don't really see it dispensed all that often. Um, but there was actually some literature back in 2014 when I was looking into it, um, that supported that there's some trace TNF alpha blocking, uh, activity of pentoxifiline. So it's not actually used for um, like the depletion or the blocking of cyclic AMP, which is what it does in the intermittent claudication. But I just thought it was an interesting mechanism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that definitely is. And and I've, I was reading it, and I, I can't imagine this is used very often, but um, thalidomide was another potential option Thalid- yeah. back in the day. Mm-hmm. You don't see that mm-hmm. one too often anymore. Nope. No, I remember like P one year, like it was mentioned once because it had really, really bad um, effects on the fetus, and they were like, yeah. just kind of stay away from it. We don't. Yeah, that's ever the use it. the token story to support the FDA, like the REMS program, right? And all that because stuff. Um, they were giving it to a bunch of um, women oh, who were pregnant for morning sickness and yeah, things, I believe, overseas. Yeah. And I, th- I believe it was whoever the head of the FDA here at the time was didn't didn't want it to be given in the U.S., so it really wasn't. And then it resulted in, um, yeah, lots of um, birth defects like and limbs. abnormalities. Yeah, I think it was short stub, stub limbs or something like that. 
Yep. Did, did, yeah. um, did you ever see any of like the over the like I want to say over the counter stuff like activated charcoal or um, turmeric or any of those things that people will sometimes use for like atopic dermatitis or anything like that used? I actually did not. I know. I I, yeah. mean, I think if anything, the, the data would be like almost nothing. But uh, I was just I'm sure curious. people try. Yeah, I'm sure anything. Yeah, especially <laughs> if something's not working. So, yeah. 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 And those are kind of like tough, even with like other other disease states. It's just kind of like man, like kind of back to the whole like how do you kind of go about those recommendations when it comes to like the comp like complementary alternative medicine. Right. Right. So, and even with yeah, the, you know, over the counter, just the regular stuff with the emollients, it seems like you're, you're fighting the result instead of fighting the source. And even with these new drugs, it's like, well, we're just going to cut off your opioid receptors that are making you feel the itch. Mm -hmm. um, it seems yeah. like at some point they get, they can make something that would prevent the physiologic response in general from the dialysis and one of the articles that that you had sent was um comparing hemodialysis to peritoneal dialysis and it looks mm -hmm. like there are lower rates uh with peritoneal dialysis which is interesting um but i guess not you know not ideal for all patients right right and then that's kind of like one of the challenges is a lot of studies or at least the study of the medication that's in the pipeline right now is specifically in hemodialysis so it's right. like how is that externally valid to our patients or on peritoneal. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. talk us through this new medication that's in the pipeline right now. Um, cause I think the, some of these studies that just came out in like December if, or recently mm -hmm. anyway, right. And say the name one more time. Cause I've already forgotten. <laughs> Diphylocephalin. Nice. I still, I still can't <laughs> say it. <laughs> so, um, so talk yeah, us through so that. Sure. So um, there was actually an article um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in November of 2019, and it was um, a randomized double-blind placebo was phase three trial um, where patients would receive uh, diflocephalin at 0 0.5 micrograms per kilograms, and then they were given that um, post-hemodialysis three times a week over a course of 12 weeks. And then there was like a two week discontinue, discontinuation phase. So um, kind of just reiterating the fact that it's, uh, so it's still in the pipeline and it's supporting the uh, pathophysiology of the imbalance in mu and kappa opioid receptors. So essentially what it is, is um, it is a kappa agonist and it to my knowledge, it doesn't. It's a selective kappa agonist, and it doesn't have any mu activity. Um, something I'd probably have to look further into. But in the article, they talked about it mostly being kappa. Um, so essentially, what they found after 12 weeks and then follow up, they were looking at um, the 5D itch score, and then they were also looking at Skindex 10 and that's kind of going back to what we were saying in the beginning was the quality of life measures and how bothered a patient is by itch and then how it impacts their daily activities. Um, patients were randomized in one-to-one. -one, so one group received a placebo and then the other, um, they received the diflocephalin. They had a total of 378 patients. So it was a pretty near even split. And then um, patients were 
I don't, I know the term old is relative, but the median age was 56.8. So they were pretty young. Um, Good not save. old Good enough save. to be on the <laughs> older, um, but not old enough to be on the beers criteria list. So like if this ever were to be on that list or kind of thinking of other medications, um, kind of keeping that in the back of our mind while thinking about giving this uh, medication potentially. And then patients were still on their, if they were on gabapentin or whatever emollient they were on, they were still able to use that during the study, but they were not allowed to start anything else outside of this drug while they were in the study. Gotcha. So, yeah. So like long story short, um, their, their baseline scores of like the, the itch score at, um, decreased it was statistically significant um and it was by like 18.2 points which was it's like when you go from mild moderate to severe it takes you i believe it takes you down an entire category um yeah and then um the overall like when we're talking about safety profile so before we get into safety so efficacy um at week 12 there was a 49.1 versus 27.2 nine percent um difference in the patients on diflokeflin versus placebo that decreased in their um anti-itch scores by at least three points and then um that was also statistically and then i guess we could also say clinically significant so overall it seems promising when it came to the efficacy portion and then when it came to overall like incidence of adverse effects um it was like nearly even. It was like 68.8% in diflokeflin group versus 62.2% in the placebo group. And the most common adverse effects were diarrhea, dizziness, and vomiting. And then the most commonly reported serious side effects were hyperkalemia, uh, surprisingly pneumonia, and then hypotension. So I think something to kind of think about when we're talking about the adverse effects is, is it coming from the drug or is it coming from the dialysis? Because obviously if someone's not dialyzed appropriately, they're going to experience hyperkalemia. Um, Sometimes patients get nervous, so they can experience like diarrhea or dizziness or hypotension. If they're over dialyzed, their blood pressure is going to drop. So, but then you can also think like opioids, right? Even though it's not mu, so constipation mm-hmm. versus like diarrhea so it's kind of like again it's my my phrase of chicken and egg so that's kind of like where my mind went with safety right um and then as far as so kind of hitting on the point of it being a, a, an opioid receptor agonist there were actually no adverse events related to opioid withdrawal in either group on cessation and on like on cessation of the drug and they were measuring that by the shows or the OOWS score, which is like the opioid withdrawal score based off of symptoms that the patients were experiencing. So my kind of conclusion was, okay, this seems like it's a promising agent under for patients who are undergoing hemodialysis, um, who are experiencing like that moderate to severe uremic pruritus. But I still think we still need a little more data. Obviously, you're going to need the phase four. You're going to need um, the head-to-head trials to be able to make a fully evidence-based and fully confident decision. Um, and I think it would 
be kind of cool to see when the data rolls out because this was the I'm so sorry I forgot to mention this this was um, an IV treatment so there's mm-hmm. also PO formulation so it's, it'll be nice to see how the data with PO versus IV kind of compares when when it comes out yeah for sure and whichever one's better I'd like to see that up against gabapentin and I guess that'll be the treatment of choice for the time being because um, yeah this is an interesting topic that doesn't seem to be well studied isn't talked about a whole lot and but I've had mm-hmm. I'm now that I've I know what it is or know what, more about what it is I've definitely had multiple patients complain of it so I, I definitely think it's something that needs to be addressed. Sure. Did did and they I mention? Also, Sorry, go ahead. Or I I think you're like kind of speaking to your point like when you're on rounds and like you have your patients who are inpatient being dialyzed and like it's it's more than just an outpatient problem so I think it yeah. can kind of be applied across the board. Yeah. You know? Sure. Yeah. Did um did they mention at all any sort of adverse effects as far as and I guess depending on who you ask this is an adverse effect but like euphoria or anything like that? They did not, to my knowledge. I can quickly pull up the article and double check myself. I don't remember. Um, I'm just wondering if they're gonna up. if it's something they're gonna make a controlled substance. Yeah, that's exactly when she was talking oh. about the the mu stuff. I was like, I wonder if this will be controlled. Because I know, like, even like Viberze, yeah, or, you know, IBS diet yeah. with diarrhea, they will give Viberze, which is you know nowhere near something that we would normally think of. But because it's working on those opioid receptors, <laughs> we still have to. It's still a controlled substance. Yeah, that would be interesting. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering if they're gonna go that route with this. Um, did, they, they did, did did you um, happen to notice like as far as baseline characteristics um, did did it break it down as far as who was on like gabapentin versus who was on you know other stand like naltrexone or other, I guess it wouldn't be naltrexone but other standard um, medications did they break it down that way I didn't see it but I'm actually looking through it right now. Um, and while I'm looking through that to answer your question, there actually were no reported events um, when it came to euphoria mm, or anything okay. like that. Um, I have to look. I have to dig a little deeper into the article. No, that's cool. I'm not trying to, to put it in your chart. spot. I'm just kind of almost thinking out loud. <laughs> they, so they actually did. So um, the most commonly used antipyretic medications at baseline, it looked like diphenhydramine was actually the highest at 37.8%. And then loratadine was the lowest at 2.1%. So Mm -hmm. it was was mostly the antihistamines, so like diphenhydramine, then hydroxazine, then hydrocortisone, then triamcinolone, and then loratadine. Did they use, was anybody on naltrexone? Not that I saw in the... In the baseline characteristics, gotcha. I wouldn't think they would yeah. be, but I was just curious if they tried to get get fancy with blocking mu receptor and then leaving uh-huh. kappa. Yep. I, I don't. I think I'm uh, I'm overthinking that one a little bit, but I was just curious. Or maybe you're right on <laughs> or track. Maybe, or maybe I stumbled across a breakthrough. We maybe don't know. you're a genius. <laughs> well, only time will tell. <laughs> um, so, did uh, any idea as far as like when this could potentially get approved? I mean, is it? Now that this is published, have they have they filed like to try to get approval? Um, that I'm actually not aware of, but I saw my preceptor a few days ago, and she said that the PO formulation is in phase four, so it it's going to make its way soon. Okay. How soon? I'm not sure. That's cool. 
Mm-hmm. So, so let's let's kind of. I know we we talked about a bunch of different drugs. So people listening and are like, "What the heck?" And trying to write down vigorously as they study. Oh yeah, because <laughs> everybody takes notes on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, of course they do. Cole, jeez. <laughs> um, so if you know, if, from kind of starting with some with initial therapy, let, let's like how what would you kind of look at, you know, right from that? What would be your progression, I guess, of, of treatment options? So if I were addressing a patient, I would definitely start with the topicals um, just to kind of make sure that their skin is like maintaining its healthiness and then kind of like, I mean, it's, there's not a lot of evidence to support anything. So if I had an ideal uh, timeline, I would start with topicals see how a patient does with that. Um, I wouldn't recommend acupuncture or UV phototherapy at any point. That's just my own personal judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, I would start a patient on gabapentin. And then after gabapentin, I'm sorry, on diphenhydramine. And then if I didn't see any effects from the diphenhydramine, I would go to the gabapentin. And then if gabapentin didn't work, I would if I was at a hospital where I would be able to get research medications, I would definitely try this diphylocephalin. Um, and then if not, then I would just definitely like talk to the physician about potential transplant, even though that's out of my scope. That's kind of where some of the literature is pointed, where it's like if you're failing all options, then a lot of these patients are put at the way high priority list of of transplant lists. Yeah, gotcha. That's interesting. But I'm yeah. sure a lot of patients just kind of have to suck it up and, you know, because if there's not a great treatment, they got to have dialysis. And if they're not going to transplant, right. they just got to just got to kind of deal with it, sadly. I was going to say, you see how yeah. cold hearted Cole is? He's just like telling yeah, people, he's telling people they got to suck it it's, up. It's I'm not saying that's what I would say. I'm saying tough. that's what they have I to do. I think that's exactly what you would say. Yeah, yeah it's unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's beyond our control. It would be motivated. We're, we're doing our due diligence it would be motivational i wouldn't necessarily say it's yeah. at, on par with threatening with strangulation but it's it is definitely a, a hard hard way of motivating you can explain that because now that just sounded like all right. no we're just gonna leave it there okay so sharon the, the reason he just said the threatening with strangulation thing is because one of my students who i was on was on rotation with me i had a good relationship with i was he told me he wasn't applying to residency um, because uh, he was didn't think he was ready for it and didn't think he could hack it. And so I told him I was going to choke him out if he didn't apply. <laughs> and so that's where that came from. We had him on the podcast. He's in his PGY2, uh, or starting PGY2 soon. And uh, we had him on the podcast Aww. recently. So we had a whole five-minute discussion about threatening my students and whether or not that's okay. <laughs> so that's the that's the background I- context of cold combat. <laughs> I think every preceptor is allowed if it's if it's for our own good. Listen, good. It, yeah. it comes from the heart. <laughs> yeah, it comes from the yeah. the violent, violent heart. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, that's 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 good stuff. Is is there anything else that um, you can think of that you want to mention, or you, did we cover everything? I think we've covered kind of the ground bases. I I think one last thing to note when it comes to the. Um, and I didn't mention this earlier, when it comes to this IV formulation, one thing that was not mentioned and that I um, still need to look into further is if it's like what volume a patient is getting of this medication and if it is diluted in anything, what is it diluted in, right? So like 
thinking like we're the pharmacist, like, okay, if it's diluted in normal saline and they're on dialysis, how is that going to affect their electrolytes or how is it going to affect their other volume intake because they're getting it post hemodialysis. Right. Right. Um, yeah. That's a really yeah. good thought. So there's that, but then I, I think it'll be cool to see how, um, the oral formulation kind of plays out. Cause I know the literature out there right now, at least what I've seen is with urmicritis and atopic dermatitis. So it's a like even more specialized of a population. Right. Yeah, I wonder if uh, I wonder if they if they've ever looked at like or are planning on looking at like phosphodiesterase four inhibitors or anything like that. Yeah, um, like um, what's that? Uh, the I know what you're talking about Tesla. Yeah, something like that. I wonder if they would, with that. Yeah, I wonder if that yeah. would have any effect. We should research that, Cole. Yeah, should open up our own lab. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be. That'd be really cool to see. Sharon, you want in? You gonna be? You, be, you want to join a lab with us? <laughs> that would be. That would be so cool. Yeah. Yeah, we'll just set you up with like those robot hands, so you know from distance you can oh, you can fill, you use pipettes and things like that. Yeah. You know yeah. How, things that are in labs, pipettes. Yeah. Like that was like the only word that came to mind. You know the, 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 bun, the bunsen burners and yeah, pipettes. The bunsen burners. Whatever they do in the this last lab. La- the last lab we were in was in undergrad chemistry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, um, no clue what we're talking about. Over here, setting, I mean, setting graduated cylinders on fire with a Bunsen burner. <laughs> oh, those are good times. That's probably what I would do now as a pharmacist, too. All right. Well, <laughs> I appreciate you doing this um, with us. I know you're busy with, on rotations and everything, so we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having me. This has been such an exciting experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Uh, and thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you do have any questions, our email address uh, will be in our email addresses will be in the show notes. Um, and you can also uh, reach us by uh, any sort of social media platform, um, Instagram, Facebook, all those fun ones. Um, you can also use our texting platform, which we've been starting to use a little bit more. So that text the number 415-943-6116. You'll get an automated response um, at first and um, once you kind of like save it in your phone book, whatever, if you ever have pharmacotherapy questions, um, text to that number and I'll uh, respond back as quick as I can. So we have that. And then if you do like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a rating, all that fun stuff. We greatly appreciate it. And we will talk to you soon. Later.